It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. In this episode, we speak with somebody involved with El Comedor, an autonomous mutual aid hub and organizing center in so-called Tijuana, Mexico, which was founded by anarchists and asylum seekers in 2018. From a previous report on its going down, El Comedor is currently one of the only places, if not the only place, serving hot meals every day in Tijuana. Though the caravan is out of the news, thousands still pass through Tijuana on their way north, hoping to escape violence. During our discussion on this podcast, we speak about autonomous mutual aid and anarchist projects in Tijuana, Mexico, as well as the rapidly militarizing borderlands. Under Biden, the U.S., and by extension, the Mexican and Canadian borders have continued to crack down on refugees. In late March, the Safe Third Country Agreement was passed. As Canadian Tire Fire wrote, a column on its going down, the new agreement forces migrants to claim asylum in the first safe country they reach and until recently applied only to legal border crossings. This crackdown comes after years of far-right attacks on migrants and refugees in Canada and has already led to the deaths of eight people that died attempting to cross into Canada, including two infant children. The Biden administration has also continued to pressure the Mexican state to act as a police force for Central and South American migrants. Under Title 42, a rule which was originally put into place by Trump advisor Stephen Miller, the white nationalist and former friend of Richard Spencer, the United States has barred asylum seekers from entering into the U.S. under the ironic pretense that will contribute to the spread of COVID-19. While Title 42 was set to expire in a month, Biden's new plan is now to not allow refugees to enter the U.S. to apply for asylum, regardless of the fact that it is a right guaranteed under international law on the grounds that they should apply for asylum in Mexico instead. President Almo of Mexico has deployed the Mexican military to serve as an auxiliary force along the U.S. border, arresting and often brutalizing Central and South American immigrants passing through Mexico on their way to the U.S. This brutality has recently been thrust into the spotlight by the recent deadly fire in Juarez. After guards refused to release detained migrants when a blaze ripped through the facility, killing 40 and injuring over 20. And while hundreds of migrant children remain separated from their families still, according to the New York Times, the Biden administration is considering reviving the practice of detaining migrant families, the same policy President Biden shut down over the past two years because he wanted a more humane system. As neoliberalism, U.S. foreign policy, and climate change continue to force millions from their homes in an attempt to cross into the U.S. and Canada, autonomous spaces like El Comedor will be needed now more than ever. Check our show notes for ways to donate, and let's get into the episode. Debbie Machete, I'm a migrant community organizer. Um, I'm an anarcho-feminist, freelance artist, photographer. Um... I'm with the collective Contra Viento y Marea, El Comedor Comunitario. We're based in Tijuana, Baja California, Mexico. We are a mutual aid project um, that operates a community kitchen, a frontline resource center, community garden. And in a few months, we're opening a free school and art lab, La Escuela Libre y Laboratorio de, la, de Arte. Um, we are a project located in the Zona Norte neighborhood, just a few blocks away from the U.S.-Mexico border wall. We operate a community kitchen uh, four days a week. We're serving approximately 1,000 plates per week, and we also give out staple food boxes for families in the neighborhood who have stoves. Uh, we also collect and distribute essential goods like clothing, uh, 
backpacks, um, face masks, condoms, and um, other things like essential medications, including the no-spray form of the opioid reversal medication, Narcan, also known as naloxone. Um, our space also hosts an acupuncture clinic once per month, um, the pandemic permitting, in collaboration with Acupuncturists Without Borders. We offer wraparound services. Um, in general, we help find emergency shelter. We provide orientation to organizations that have legal aid. Um, all our meals, goods, and services are entirely free of charge. Um, let's see, our space started in February of 2019. We're one of the only projects that was co-founded by anarchists and Central American migrant youth from the November 2018 migrant caravan. Our space um, is called Contra Viento y Marea because that was the name of the caravan that came to Tijuana in November of 2018. It was a caravan that included a contingency of LGBTQ migrants. Um, when the caravan arrived, there was a group of about 500 migrants who were living in a warehouse near the Benito Juarez Sports Stadium. In this bodega, the migrants, um, without having any background in organizing or activism or um, knowing about direct action, they created an autonomous group of, of organized um, teams. They had a, a kitchen team that provided meals for everyone. They had a donations team that collected donations in, in a bodega and then distributed them out. Uh, they had a security team that was there to de-escalate conflicts and uh, provide um, safety to the members of, of the bodega. In, in the evenings, We are in an, they were in an increasingly dangerous neighborhood. It's the same neighborhood where we're currently located. Um, after a few months, the bodega, the warehouse where they were living, was forcibly... Uh, shut down by the municipal government. Even though that was that was the case, the migrants that were living there put up a fierce resistance, and they decided when they were going to leave. They didn't let the government make that determination for them. Um, there was an evening in December around Christmas um, where about. Um, 500 uh, riot police showed up at 5 a.m. to forcibly evict them. And the migrants, without hesitation, were able to lock down the bodega, um, chain themselves to the entry, to the doors, to the and, and barricade in. And they were effective at repealing that eviction. At that time, I and others from my collective, um, I was with Hecate Society at that point. We went to the bodega after that incident and talked with the migrants and asked them what it was that they needed in order to continue um, living there and what we could do to support them. And they asked us if we would help them by providing um, legal observing or, or like just to, to police watch or, or cop watch the, um, the way that the municipal police treated them and the authorities in general treated the migrants there. The, the municipal authorities escalated their tactics against the migrants that were living there. They, at one point, denied them water from coming in. They denied them food. They uh, took away the, the porta-potties They asked the trash collectors to stop picking up the trash. And after a while, the neighbors complained about the trash, saying that the migrants were, were leaving a lot of the trash. But it was a, it was a tactic the municipal government used in order to get the community, the neighbors, to turn against this bodega of migrants. And so um, 
around January, the migrants decided that they would relocate to a shelter. And at that point, um, several of the, the migrant organizers that had been in the, in the warehouse wanted to continue providing free meals to migrants that had just arrived with the caravan and others in the community that needed them. And so with the support of my collective and various other anarchist groups and collectives, um, local and international, we were able to raise the funds and gather the resources that we needed to open up this space, um, which is where Contra Viento y Marea is now. Um, it's a legacy of the migrant caravan. And so we feel like we're the vanguards of the legacy of resistance that came with that caravan. Um, it's a project that is built on uh, mutual aid in the sense that the collaboration that we have, the way that we organize, we are outside of the nonprofit system. We aim to work on a basis of solidarity and friendship instead of um, charity. We reject models in which we would have leaders established in the space. We feel that all of us can step up to be leaders when we're called upon to, and we all need to be capable of doing that. And so we invest our our energy in organizing in ways in which all of us who are here are able to grow and learn from each other. Um, we don't have an executive director. We don't have a board of trustees. Migrants and other volunteers that do the work are those that make the decisions about how we operate. And we um, have been successful at being able to survive immense challenges that we face um, by using networks of transnational solidarity and mutual aid tactics. You know, you've mentioned that this is a, an explicitly anarchist project. Talk about the anarchist movement locally and regionally, just the different groups involved, you know, the, I guess the history of the movement, how it's come together to support that project. So this is one of the only projects that originated from a collaboration between explicitly radical and mostly anarchist organizers and activists and folks who align with, um, with radical views coming together in partnership with migrant youth from the caravan and starting a project together in the hopes of being able to feed the migrant refugee deportee community that is located in this area and to try to sustain um, the new waves of migrants and refugees who are currently coming into the city, as well as supporting those that are being deported by the day from the U.S. Um, the, the anarchist community in Tijuana um, has been facing attacks from all sides, and it is a very difficult dynamic because we see, for example, um, pressure from the state ranging from the municipal government, in particular the municipal police, all the way to um, the federal government. Being located in Tijuana means we're um, a few blocks from the border wall. And this area is heavily militarized. Um, we see National Guard patrolling the streets. We see uh, the Mexican army. The municipal police is vicious. Um, and so we, we face quite a lot of repression from the state. Um, in addition, we see on the other side of the, the border wall has its dynamics of the, the militarization through the U.S., right? And the billions of dollars spent on things like the border wall, biometric um, data collection of migrants, spanning to things like robot dogs being tested to patrol the border, drones, um, the best of the military-industrial complex being present here. And so with challenges like these, it really fragments the community, but it also makes the resistance um, 
much more vibrant where it does crop up and where it does continue to hold out. Um, we see other, other different kinds of pressures um, molding the anarchist community in Tijuana. Um, there's an extreme lack of resources and immense poverty that is crushing the, the working class poor communities in which we operate. And it makes it so the folks that most need help cannot provide the resources to sustain any kind of programming that they desperately need which means we have to look elsewhere transnationally for the resources to be able to put on free programs. Um, this brings us into contact with allies and friends and accomplices from all over the world that come down to support, volunteer physically or virtually, um, as well as providing funds, donations of everything from hand sanitizer to naloxone, or Narcan, which is a medication used to reverse uh, opioid overdoses. And so we, we work closely with many other groups um, regionally and also um, that are in the US and also in other, in other countries. Um, it, it has made it so that our survival depends on these networks of solidarity. They're not just casual friendships we stand up for each other in ways that go beyond um, just sharing our, our social media posts or uh, casually checking in every once in a while. Um, the, the type of solidarity that we use um, to operate um, requires a, cons a consistent amount of support, dedication, transparency, and um, being there for each other when times are the hardest. There, there's another um, anarchist space here called Enclave Caracol. Um, they do tremendous work as well. They put on workshops and shows to raise money. Um, they also have a Food Not Bombs chapter. I think they're serving um, 50 plates twice, uh, twice per week they're serving. 50 plates per day. And they've kept that program going. Um, you know, it's expanded and also shrunk given the challenges of like the pandemic and other issues with funding. And so um, we're all struggling for funding really to survive. But we also find that solidarity and forming um, alliances of collaboration based on mutual aid are the key factors which have made us uh, uh, overcome the storm. Um, we also work in collaboration with other groups that are uh, based in other border cities. So in Ciudad Juarez, we work with Casa Carmelita. Um, I think they're actually based in El Paso, but they, they have a house in El Paso. And they also do uh, mutual aid work. They, they have a meals program. They provide uh, donations and goods to the community. Um, and they, they also bring that stuff down to, to Ciudad Juarez. They use it as a base to bring down all the support that the shelters they, they, uh, they partner with need. So those are, those are some examples of the different groups that we, we work with in tandem. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that in the United States, at least in the, you know, the mass corporate media, one of the big things that's been discussed about in terms of the border and the so-called you know migrant crisis is title 42 which was something that was implemented under trump uh pushed by white nationalist figures within the administration like stephen miller uh used under the auspices of the covid 19 pandemic that basically gave the u.s uh an out to stop people from applying for asylum into the United States under the idea that they were stopping uh, the spread of COVID-19, which is, of course, ironic considering Trump's stance on you know, the pandemic. But this is something that's continued under Biden, and the right has uh, tried to basically paint this picture that Biden wants to get rid of it, and then that's causing this crisis and rush on the border. Uh, one of the things that hasn't been talked about is that the Biden administration has been critical of Title 42 because, at least from my understanding, 
if you cross and you're you're uh, caught up by border patrol under Title Forty Two, you're just basically taken back to the other side, and then you're you, know, you can you can try to cross again essentially. Um, what's your vantage point? What are you what are you seeing? How is the existence of Title Forty Two playing out where you're at? Yeah, you're absolutely correct to say that uh, the Biden administration has continued Title 42, which was started um, under the auspices of being a public health care policy um, related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And Biden has publicly said that the pandemic is over. Um, pharmaceutical companies that invented the vaccine are planning to mark up the price 400 um, percent in the coming weeks or months. And so it's ironic that you'll say the pandemic is over and big pharma's acting like the pandemic is over, that the vaccines don't have to be free anymore. Meanwhile, this policy, um, Title 42, uh, is still in place. And so it seems like a contradiction of the pandemic is only over when it suits the administration and when it suits big business, but the pandemic in reality is not over. And that doesn't mean that Title 42 is a, is a policy that will decrease the spread of, of COVID-19. And so it's been detrimental. One of the main ways that Title 42 has impacted the migrant and refugee community is that it has pushed them into the arms of organized crime. And the reason being that there is no legal pathway to apply for asylum with Title 42 in place. Um, so if there's no legal pathway for them to apply for asylum, that means they have to go to um, human traffickers who are mostly aligned with the cartels in order to pay them to try to get across. It creates an incentive for um, the cartels to make money off of migrants and refugees who are desperate to get across because they're trapped in the border region, which is terribly dangerous. Um, and because of policies like Title 42, um, the number of, of kidnappings, the number of homicides, torture, mass graves um, have all skyrocketed. So this policy in particular has been created in order to prevent migrants from crossing. And it obviously has nothing to do with COVID-19. As you mentioned, Stephen Miller was one of the architects behind it in the Trump administration. Um, and, and so the, the impact on a local level has been for uh, the number of incidents of violence uh, at the hands of organized crime to increment uh, migrants are living um, in situations of extreme duress. Um, a lot of them cannot return to their home countries and they can't cross to the U.S. unless they have substantial financial means to pay a coyote or a smuggler. And a lot of them are not able to work if they are undocumented. Um, a lot of them are facing homelessness. The shelters are over capacity in Tijuana. Um, a lot of them live on the streets. It's increasingly easy to get terrible drugs that are highly addictive and very lethal, um, including fentanyl. Uh, they sell it in little baggies that you can just buy for 50 pesos. I mean, it's just absolutely out of control that... Uh, Conversely, we're seeing uh, an influx of, of migrants who are caught in limbo in cities like Tijuana. And under all these conditions of, of extreme poverty and vulnerability, um, we're seeing the number of migrants disappeared or, or dying uh, go up uh, exponentially. You brought up fentanyl, and that's obviously something that's being played up in the media by politicians a lot, too. Uh, this is something that came up during the uh, Biden State of the Union. Is it fair to say that people bringing fentanyl into the U.S., at least in part, um, some of them are the cartels are basically pushing them to bring that in as they're being trafficked into the country? So essentially Title 42 
pushing people into the arms of cartels to get into the United States because they can't apply for asylum. Thus, that's also, at least in some instances, increasing the amount of fentanyl being brought in. Of course, we know that most drugs enter the United States through ports of entry, but uh, is there an increase in the folks that are also coming through traffickers as well? I wouldn't be able to give you those numbers because folks who do use um, human smugglers to get into the U.S. Um, won't necessarily give you that information. Um, you have to have a relationship with them in order to hear about it. Um, but with the issue of fentanyl, I think I think the solution to the drug war and to all the problems related with the prohibition of drugs can be solved overnight if we legalize all drugs. And that's a position that I hold from uh, seeing people dying from overdoses on the street that we then um, provide Narcan to or support. Um, this is from facing the consequences of uh, illicit drugs, um, including heroin and and some of it laced with fentanyl, seeing that up close, our position as a collective is the decriminalization and the legalization of all drugs. And that's because when there is no longer this punitive approach to dealing with a public health care issue, folks that need support um, will more likely get help and receive the care that they desperately need instead of being sent to jails or prisons in a cycle that uh, never ends therefore further traumatizing them, exposing them to um, more drugs within the system, within jails and prisons, um, not getting them the resources that they really need to, to uh, live a life that is suitable for their human potential to be developed and for them to feel that they live with dignity. A lot of the folks that are, are drug users will tell you that the reason that they're consuming um, heroin, for example, is because they have experienced severe trauma in their lives. They want to check out of all the different um, terrible things they've had to see and live with. And so it's one way for them to deal with mental health care problems that need to be addressed. And so if we provide people with free housing, free health care, free food, no matter what your income level is, like if the if there was just this policy worldwide where everyone was just provided with the basic things that we all need to live, um, I think that the number of drug users would decline drastically. And if we provided people with not just um, the things like that we, of course, like food and, and healthcare, but also if we provide people education and we provide education that is nurturing, that is trauma-centered, that allows for folks to um, be developing the skill sets they want in the areas that they want, whether that's playing an instrument or um, becoming a map maker or diving or whatever it is. But folks need that support to then be able to find purpose and find um, a way to deal with, with trauma and, and depression and anxiety and all the other underlying mental health care problems. And so I think um, criminalizing um, drug users has never been a solution and it's never going to work. And sending more um, police officers onto the streets to then arrest poor people, to harass uh, working class um, youth, I think that will never be a solution that is adequate, and especially not in our neighborhood in Zona Norte. This, of course, is a huge question, but I mean, the last time that we talked to folks uh, down your way, it was under Trump. The narrative now in the U.S. and mainstream corporate media is that there's a border crisis, quote unquote, and that there's more people attempting to cross in the United States illegally. We're seeing a drastic increase in people crossing or attempting to cross. So I'm just curious, you know, from your vantage point, what are you seeing? I think the the news and the mainstream media in particular have a vested interest in reporting whatever narrative suits their their convenience and their bottom line. 
I don't think the mainstream media is in the business of reporting the actual news. I think um, there's been a lot said and, and written that's been incredible about um, how the mainstream media manipulates um, the public into accepting um, draconian policies that are that go against our best interests. Um, manufacturing consent um, by Noam Chomsky is an example of, of one of those pieces that I would recommend on the subject. But I bring that up to say that when the, the news media talks about migrants and refugees and a migrant crisis, they don't know, they don't give you the full context. They don't give you the full picture. They're only telling you what is politically advantageous for for them to say. And especially what, you know, the their corporate sponsors want them to say or not say. And what we're seeing in reality is a manufactured crisis at the border, one that has a lot of um, historical context that needs to be included. And um, in particular, we need to talk about the U.S.'s role in displacing migrants and refugees from their homes in Latin America, but also the Caribbean. Um, in Tijuana, we're seeing migrants and refugees coming um, from as far away as Cameroon. Um, we see migrants coming from Russia as well. Uh, there's a whole host of people coming from all over the world, um, not to mention, of course, some of the larger groups that are coming here from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. Um, we see some from Cuba, Venezuela, um, from, ha from Haiti, from Jamaica. Um, the folks that are coming to the border have always been coming in, in different time periods, depending on what's happening in, these in their home country. Um, for example, in 2009, the, uh, Honduras had a coup that was U.S.-backed or U.S.-supported. Um, Hillary Clinton was the, the Secretary of State at that time, and she was involved in approving the support for uh, the dictator Juan Orlando Hernandez staying in power. Um, and, you know, now it's been revealed um, that Juan Orlando Hernandez in particular was running a narco state, that he... Uh, was involved implicitly and explicitly in, in supporting drug traffickers. <clears throat> His brother was incarcerated, incarcerated in the U.S., I think in New York, on, on drug trafficking charges. And so we saw a huge influx of, of migrants coming from Honduras based on that coup. Thanks for calling the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. While you're waiting, here are some interesting facts about this sheriff's office. Nearly all those convicted in Maricopa County live in Ten City. It is an inexpensive jailhousing system that has become known throughout the world. The tents have grown to house 2,000 men and women, and more tents are now under construction to make way for a predicted surge in illegal immigration arrests. Condena. 
correré mi destino para burlar la ley perdido en el corazón de la grande Babilón me dicen el clandestino yo soy el quebrale mano negra clandestina mexicano clandestino hondureño clandestino maricopa ilegal Es lo que quieren hacer, lo que hay en Guantánamo Bay, es lo que quieren como si fuéramos nosotros que terroristas. No somos terroristas, simplemente que es lo que queremos hacer, pan, llevar pan a la casa, a la, a la familia. Pero está duro, acá canico simplemente por venir a trabajar. Solo voy con mi pena, solaba mi condena. Correré mi destino para burlar la ley Perdido en el corazón de la grande Babilón Me dicen el clandestino, yo soy el quebrale Mano negra, clandestina, mexicano, clandestino Guatemalteco, clandestino, maricopa, ilegal And when they're coming to the U.S. <clears throat> to solicit asylum, the U.S. is shutting the door in their face after having been complicit in displacing them from their homeland. Um, there are other things that are causing migrants to flee, of course. Um, there's climate change. We're already seeing climate refugees. We have been seeing them. Um, There's been, for example, in, in Honduras, there was two hurricanes, um, Eta and Iota, well, in Central America in general, in, in Honduras and um, El Salvador and uh, Guatemala. And these two hurricanes also caused an influx of people coming to the border. Um, we see uh, most recently in, in Haiti with the assassination of the president, uh, Jovenel Moisey, that there were a lot of folks coming from there to Tijuana. Things that happen, and of course there's been, you know, the the case of, of Jovenel Moise's assassination has been linked to some folks that were US connected, others from Colombia and, and Venezuela. And so it's still murky as to the situation there because it's still in, under scrutiny, I guess. Um, but the impact that these, events have caused folks not to be able to sustain themselves, um, poverty to increase, uh, instability politically in the country um, leads to street violence. And so we see the number of migrants um, coming because of those types of, of incidents. And the number of migrants is only going to increase. The reason being, as I mentioned, climate change but also other, other acts that the U.S. is committing right now in other countries, other acts that are displacing people. Um, and there can, I can name many examples, but I think, I think your audience would know uh, a little bit more about that as well. Has the Mexican state uh, changed its policing structure at all since Biden has come in, or is it just the same as under Trump? Yeah, the Mexican state focusing um, at the national level because immigration is a national um, issue or it's under the jurisdiction of the national government. Um, under Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, also known as AMLO, we have seen his rhetoric soften towards migrants, but he has increased the number of National Guard. He has... Um, invested much more heavily in militarizing the border on this side and expanding the border wall um, from just being the, the U.S. built version here in the north. Uh, AMLO has turned the entire country into a border wall to prevent migrants from reaching the U.S. at the behest of the Biden administration. And um, we see at the border between Mexico and Guatemala that 
there have been an increased number of um, immigration agents from the Instituto Nacional de Migración, the INE. Um, there have been more immigration agents spread throughout the country and they have been detaining, they have been blocking any more caravans from reaching Tijuana or reaching the north. They set up checkpoints um, with the National Guard to not let anyone who is traveling undocumented continue heading north. Um, they've made it much more difficult for folks to reach the north and much more dangerous because people are taking increasingly more um, rural and dangerous routes to avoid the checkpoints, to avoid being captured. Now, is this a continuation of the Remain in Mexico policy or, or they got rid of that? Remain in Mexico stays in, still in place. Um, there have been, well, I feel like the administration has, has been all over the place in saying that they were going to lift it and then the courts... Um, due to a case bought, brought by several Republican governors, um, they uh, were able to make the policy stay. And so I think it's still being litigated, um, but for now it's still in place. And yeah, I think, um, I think Remain in Mexico, um, which is also known as MPP, Migrant Protection Protocols, um, has been... Um, another way in which migrants are forced to go um, to take more dangerous routes, to, to go to uh, human smugglers, to try to avoid being captured um, and to make their journey northward. And so it's also one of the reasons why we've seen um, violence escalate um, and, and migrants being um, disappeared along along the route and, and extraordinary numbers what about um in terms of like border patrol or u.s uh law enforcement or army has is that has like there been more of a buildup has it been the same is it fluctuating i think it i think it's been fluctuating i'm not as familiar with what's happening in terms of that that question um but i think it depends on on um, it depends on how visible the issue of immigration is at the time, and if if there seems to be a lot of pressure to further militarize, I think that's what's been happening. Um, again, like th the issue of of immigration is a federal issue in the U.S. as well as in Mexico, and so it's the federal government that increases the number of border patrol um, or decreases them. Um, we see that it's very difficult for folks to cross here in Tijuana. A lot of them are not able to do so. Um, a few months ago, there was um, a, a body of a migrant lying on the beach here in Playas de Tijuana. And, um, you know, several folks took video of it and it turned out to be a Russian um, migrant or refugee. Um, but yeah, people are increasingly dying and it's, it's very visible. Um, we also heard of, of another person, um, at that same border crossing in Playas de Tijuana. Um, this was maybe about a year ago. Um, a person drowned there trying to cross the border wall for a little bit more context. The border wall goes into the ocean and it doesn't go in very far. So it looks like you can just either traverse underneath it by swimming, um, but the currents are very strong, and a lot of folks get uh, get trapped in the in the currents and and don't survive. Um, and and that's been a point where we can see people that are literally dying um, trying to get across. The response, oh, the response by Border Patrol in that instance is like there's a watchtower there that's a few. Um, a few feet away, and but it's hidden under like this hill, and so you can't see it from this side, from the Mexican side. Um, but it's it's very much like an easier place for them to pick up folks. 
there have been instances where we've seen folks who get across that border wall through, not through the ocean portion of it, but through the land part. And uh, they've been immediately captured by border patrol. And on this side, on, on the Tijuana side, folks will be cheering them on, you know, and like booing the border patrol. So it's, it's something that we are familiar with to see how the, the border patrol operates um, with folks that are trying to cross right. in this area. And before people were describing it to us that like people waiting, this again, this was a couple years ago, but people would like basically wait there in Tijuana, like for their number to be called and they would get up and try to like, you know, plead their case or whatever. Is that still in effect or just like there's just no asylum hearings whatsoever? People are just kind of there and then they'll try to like go off and like find their own way into the U.S. or what? what is the setup like? Yeah. So the list that you're referring to is a process called metering and it was a process that wasn't created by U.S. policy. It was a system that was devised by migrants on this side of the border needing to figure out a way for them to cross over um the it it was a it became later officially sanctioned and and it was called metering but it first began when there was an influx of haitian migrants who were coming to solicit asylum um technically under domestic and even uh u.s domestic law um anyone can seek uh, asylum by just coming to a port of entry and saying, I am seeking asylum. Um, you have to technically have a foot in U.S. soil to be able to solicit it. And so under this this metering system, folks were arriving and there was no way for them to be able to solicit. Like they weren't allowed to step a foot into U.S. soil to then go up to a border patrol agent and say, I'm, I want to solicit asylum. And so they created a list. And basically, folks would just go to one of these ports of entries, the official ones, and and say to on this side of the border, say to um, a person that was there taking the numbers. It, a lot of it was run by like civil society organizations. They would just give their name and a number, and they would come back later when their number was being called and present themselves. And it was a way to to streamline the process in an orderly fashion for migrants. They are no longer doing metering. Um, and that's become a process that doesn't, doesn't exist anymore because of Title 42 and uh, MPP or Remain in Mexico. Now, in order to solicit asylum, uh, there's an, an app, an app that they created that uh, you have to fill out if you're a migrant and you have to fill out this like form before you solicit asylum or or else you have no chance at asylum. It's one of the requirements now. And there's a lot of problems with the app. Um, there's uh, language issues. It only comes in English and Spanish. And what if you are, for example, a Haitian migrant and don't speak these languages? Uh, there's no support filling it out. Some of the things that are asked are um, documents that you would need to have like your birth certificate or your marriage license or, or your marriage certificate, excuse me, things like that, which some people who have just migrated like 3000 miles across uh, five or six countries, they don't have those documents anymore. They've lost them or they never got them, you know, with them in the first place. And so it becomes a whole issue when, when folks try to submit this app that they're not able to because they're missing documents or they're unable to fill out the information that is asked of them. It requires you to have a physical mailing address. A lot of migrants don't have a mailing address. And so it uh, it's a, a barrier. It's another obstacle to keep people from being able to apply for asylum, which is their right under law. Um, a lot of uh, civil society groups have been helping migrants fill out the, the, the forms, but there's obviously many more um, folks who want to solicit asylum than there is support for them. And the U.S. hasn't made any like attempt to help people fill it out or support people with the process in any way. They just made this app and released it into the wild and said, whoever can do it can is good. And it also requires you to have financial backing in the sense that you have to have 
funds to be able to pay for the paperwork that you're missing or um, if you need a passport, um, which I think is required, uh, you would have to, you know, go to a consulate that's uh, for your country here. And there are not consulates for every country located here in Tijuana or in Mexico. And so it, it's a whole cluster. Enjoying this podcast and want to support It's Going Down so we can continue to crank out more content? It's easy. Go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or the menu version on mobile that says support IGD and then you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. Without your support, IGD doesn't continue. So if you appreciate our work, please consider supporting us. Again, go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or on the menu version of mobile that says support IGD. And you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. You can also find the link in our Collectiva social media account and in the show notes of this podcast on itsgoingdown.org. And now, back to the show. You know, do you feel it's it's just really about just controlling the flow of people? Yeah, I think it's, it's as you mentioned, the point of this app and the point of making the process to apply for asylum um, extremely challenging. The point is to keep people from seeking asylum, from actually being able to apply for asylum. And I think that points to a broader, very nefarious agenda, which is the U.S., um, doesn't want to bring in migrants from undesirable countries or countries that um, where where folks are fleeing from poverty, but also from U.S. Uh, U.S. backed dictators and other um, U.S. policies like NAFTA or now the U.S. Mexico Canada Agreement, the the latest version of NAFTA. Um, and so I think the the underlying point of denying people their right to seek asylum is because I feel the U.S. is is a racist country, is is a white supremacist country at its core. Both political parties have uh, the blood of migrants on their hands, and I think that a lot of the the anti-migrant fervor and the xenophobia is coming from this sense that migrants are undesirable people to have when um, the U.S. is responsible for displacing them to then criminalize them serves a broader agenda. One of the reasons I think um, for denying people their right to asylum as well is, is because they can then be criminalized, right? They can be undocumented. They can be deported. They can also be held in immigrant detention centers and make profit for these private prison corporations like like CCA um, and Geo Group and others who who want people to be criminalized, but also want people to warehouse and therefore make money off of their suffering. Um, and the private prisons, um, I remember reading about this years ago, but uh, reading an article about how private prisons in particular see migrants and migrant women and children um, as their as their growth market that they plan to expand their operations into warehousing these communities because they see it as an opportunity to make huge profits. Um, and broader point from from all this is that when folks are are kept in conditions of extreme poverty, when they're kept um, oppressed, it serves the political elite. It serves the status quo to have people who are not demanding their rights, who are subservient, who are kept in line um, through economic and political and social means. This is a strategy which is not just used on migrants, it's used on other other communities of color, um, and other um, other groups around the world to try and maintain control over them. 
Well, we've been talking for a while now. I'm curious um, if you want to tell people how they can support the work that uh, you all are doing and, I don't know, just any other thoughts or, or any other things that you all are working on uh, that you want to talk about. Thank you for the question. And thank you for this interview. It's been really lovely to be able to talk about these things with you and to also um, reflect on them deeper and um, also put out our perspective as, as our collective on, on where we stand on a lot of these issues that are um, very important for other organizers to hear and learn about and also for other folks to find us and, and support our work and, and be in solidarity with us. Um, in the coming months, we're hoping for May, we're planning to open a free school, La Escuela Libre. And with this new project, we're hoping to provide a wide range of workshops on topics as diverse as reproductive justice and sexual health, to harm reduction, to Zen and meditation, to martial arts, to um, personal finances, um, photography, um, videography, art um, in general, makeup, um, muraling, workshops. So all of these things. Um, and, and we are looking for folks who want to teach workshops and um, the students that we that we will be supporting um, are going to be migrant, refugee, uh, deportee youth, but also others who have been denied traditional educational opportunities because of their income, because of their race, their uh, immigration status. And so the goal is to open a community space where we can teach, learn, and play together, um, where we can create organic uh, networks of, of personal support um, so that folks um, have a place to to meet others in their community um, in a place that's safe. Um, in this in this neighborhood, there are no public libraries, there are no basketball courts. Everything has been, you know, all the public spaces are increasingly um, privatized. There's very few parks. And so this this space would open up doors for for youth and and others to be able to um, learn about the things that were denied because of um, because all these different knowledges cost money and make space for them to be able to empower themselves. Uh, we're using um, a research methodology and a school of activism called Participatory Action Research, PAR. And in this model, uh, we who are doing the, the work as volunteers, those that are the, the workshop facilitators or teachers and the students, we are all um, horizontally aligned and there is no uh, hierarchy between us. And so those who are students can then be workshop teachers at other times or can go on next year to be the workshop teachers. Uh, those that are volunteers can participate in the workshops or they can participate as students. Um, there's opportunities for everyone to learn to organize the free school if they're interested, not just come and attend the workshops, but to also be part of the, the organizing community that's going on um, to sustain this. And um, the goal is, is to be able to help people um, learn to think for themselves. And we feel like that should be the purpose of education. Um, another thing that's very important to our, our free school project is that uh, we believe that education should serve what the students wanna learn and should be driven by the student interests, not um, approach through a top-down model where the teachers know best what students should learn, but instead we plan to have the students uh, also be uh, part of the decision-making process when it comes to the curriculum, when it comes to uh, the collaboration of putting on the workshops, but also learning and, and being um, in a safe place where they can ask questions, where they can explore all these different areas that might have seemed interesting, but they never had time to before because they had to work two jobs or they had to migrate, they have children. And so we plan to make this project 
um, aligned with our anarchist values, with with anarchist pedagogy. And so we welcome all those who are interested in coming to take part in this uh, incredible project that we've been working on so hard for the last few months. In terms of other other things that I want to raise briefly about how folks can get in, involved or plugged in, um, folks can write to us at our, at our Gmail address, Contraviento y Marea Comedor at Gmail. Uh, we have a website, Contraviento y Marea, in the letters tj.com. Um, you can find us on the mass control platforms of your choice, um, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and pretty soon, I think we're going to have a TikTok, but we're still working on some of the videos for it. But yeah, it's going to be a wonderful um, way for us to connect with other groups as well that are doing similar or adjacent work. Um, we're here for yeah, we're here for the solidarity. We're here for the the mutual aid uh, community that uh, is is transnational, and we hope that folks who are listening will be inclined to reach out and and join us um, in our struggle to to liberate ourselves and liberate our community. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.